Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey everyone, Rhea Wong here with you once again. It's been a little while since I've done a solo show, so I just wanted to say hello. I hope you all are having a nice summer, i.e. the weirdest summer ever, but I hope that your family and you are healthy and happy and safe. I want to thank you so much for all of the positive feedback that I've been getting in the last couple of days and for in general, really appreciate you all listening to Nonprofit Lowdown. We are coming up on our 100th episode and honestly, I didn't think I'd be doing it this long, but it really has taken on a life of its own and it's really thanks to folks like you who are regular listeners. So thank you so much for being part of the Nonprofit Lowdown family. If this is a podcast that you have enjoyed. Please comment and share. That's how I get some visibility via the platforms. I don't make any money doing this. It's a labor of love. So anything that I can do to help share the visibility and add value, I'd love to do. So thanks so much for that. The other thing I wanted to just remind you all is that we I do have a mailing list. And I know you all don't need more emails. I don't need more emails, but I do send a weekly newsletter and it has information about upcoming webinars that we do. And so you'll get an invitation to webinars that are of interest to the nonprofit community. And we often do Q and A's with really interesting people. So head on over to realwong.com if you wanna join the mailing list. I also send out really interesting tips and tools. And of course, Stevie Wonder Dog makes a cameo in every single newsletter. So if nothing else, you'll get a cute picture of my cute dog who really, it just makes it all worthwhile. I don't know if some of you follow me on the socials, but if you have, you have seen that I've been doing a lot of content recently about what I call the five M's of building a fundraising program. I've become obsessed with this have been derived from my 15 years in the nonprofit field, and it's a framework for how to think about building a fundraising program. I talk about this a lot, but when I first started as an executive director, I was 26 years old. I didn't know what I was doing, literally had no idea. And over 12 years, I built the organization up to under $3 million a year in private funds. And along the way, I learned a lot of stuff. The 5M framework is really born out of 15 years of trial and error. So I've made all the mistakes, so you don't have to. You can make new and different mistakes. I hope you do make new and different mistakes. But the 5M framework, it's a really simple framework for how to understand and think about fundraising, which can often feel very overwhelming, and particularly if you're in a small nonprofit and if you're a first-time ED or a first-time development director, it just feels like everything is coming at you all the time, all at once. And especially as an ED, I totally get it. You're the head fundraiser. You're also, you know, what's that term, the head cook and janitor. I mean, you're as an ED. I would go from having a, you know, a meeting with a top prospect to ordering pizza to fishing out retainers from the trash can. So I I get how you're being asked to do a lot. And so I developed this 5M framework because I realized y'all don't have time to waste and you really need to focus in on those key drivers that are going to make a huge difference in your fundraising performance. So if you haven't seen them already, check them out. They're on my website, realwong.com. 
also available via the mailing list. Let me plug that again. But I hope that it's valuable in thinking about how to structure your fundraising department. So I specifically focused the 5M framework on organizations of about a million dollars and under and why that group of people. So number one, I didn't know this, maybe you knew this, but 60% of all nonprofits in this country are less than a million dollars, which is pretty insane to think about. There are about 1.5 million nonprofits in this country. And I heard another quote from the Chronicle of Philanthropy that this pandemic and the oncoming recession will see a big contraction in the nonprofit sector, anywhere from 35% to 10%. But if, if we're dinosaurs, the meteor is coming. And so the organizations that will survive are the ones that figure out how to raise money and to do the most with what they have. And I just think at a million dollars, is really the sweet spot for me because I understand what it's like to build up a nonprofit without a lot of staff. And so a lot of times when I would see fundraising advice out there, it seemed to me that it was particularly focused on bigger nonprofits that had a development department. I had no department. I had myself and a development assistant. Or it's not put in context to understand how it all works together. So that's how I initially developed my 5M framework. And, you know, and I specifically really want to serve the smaller nonprofits that are doing such important work in their local communities. So without further ado, I'd like to actually walk through the 5Ms with you right now so you have a little bit of an understanding of what these are in case you haven't seen the video or maybe you have seen the video and you want to do a bit more of a deep dive. So Let's get to it. So what are the five M's? The five M's briefly are number one, mindset, number two, message, number three, market, number four, methodology, and number five, management. I'll go over these five elements in some detail and I'd love to hear from you. So if this has been helpful to you or if you have questions, shoot me an email. You can find me on the socials. You can find me on my website. Basically, you can find me 24-7. I don't ever really turn my phone off, which is a whole other story. But good news for you because I am available for you. Okay, let's get to it. Number one, mindset. So I think this is probably the most important thing to cover when we talk about fundraising, because at the end of the day, and I say this a lot, 80% of successful fundraising is your mindset about it. And 20% is just executing against the tactics. But so often when I see fundraisers having a hard time with fundraising, it's really because I think they haven't done that deep internal work of examining their own mindset about money. So let's talk about money for a second. I think in our culture, money is really considered to be uh, a taboo topic, probably akin to talking about sex and politics. And as a result, a lot of us are raised with unhealthy relationships to money. In my particular case, I grew up in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s, and my parents we're both professionals. We grew up in a comfortable middle-class family, but both my parents were children of immigrants and both had grown up very, very poor. And so 
the relationship that I had growing up with money was one of scarcity because they had grown up with a scarcity mindset as well. And it was real. I mean, they, they did grow up in a household where money was not, um, was not plentiful or bountiful. And so I remember distinctly in the 80s that there are, as now, many folks who are homeless. And it was the height of the AIDS crisis in San Francisco. So lots of people living on the streets. And I remember once giving a quarter to a homeless man. And I must have been like seven or eight years old. And I remember getting in trouble with my parents because the response I got from them was like, oh, so you have so much money now you can just give it away? So to say that philanthropy was not a value in our family is fairly accurate. But what I never really realized until I was much older and actually fundraising was somehow in that moment, in addition to all of the messages that I got in my childhood, is that money is there to be hoarded and that if I give away money, in a sense, I'm giving away my security. And so, and I don't know about you all, but I was raised very often with this idea of, oh, we can't afford it, or money doesn't grow on trees, or whatever it may be. And so that was a scarcity mindset that I had carried with me without really knowing it. And that really impacted my ability to be an effective fundraiser because subconsciously, I was imbuing my own baggage about money onto other people that I was asking for money. And so in a sense, I felt when I asked for money that I was asking them to give up security or to give up something for their families, which made it very hard to be an effective fundraiser. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I still battle every day with this scarcity mindset, but number one, bringing it to the surface and being aware of my beliefs about money has really gone a long way to combat that, to change my money mindset and to change my relationship with money. And so when we think about being effective fundraisers, the question is what kind of energy and what kind of values are you imbuing into money without even knowing it? And therefore, how have those beliefs and values and assumptions about money impact your feelings about money and therefore your actions about money. And so if you're finding it really hard to be a fundraiser, if you're finding it really hard to talk to people about philanthropic commitments, I think a really good place to start would be to, to do some soul searching about your own relationship with money. And, and I think that there are probably indicators in your everyday life too. Are you a spender or are you a saver? How are you managing your own personal money and how might that be affecting the ways in which money is being managed in your organization or the attitudes that other people around you have about money? And so a pretty deep question. Obviously, we could do a much deeper dive into it, but I think it's a really important place to start and really important questions to ask yourself. Okay, number two is message. So this is a personal pet peeve of mine because when I look at most nonprofit websites, it's all super confusing. A lot of nonprofit websites use terms like empower and leadership, but few of them are not actually communicating and articulating the problem that they're trying to solve in the world or how they're trying to solve it. On top of that, when you go to the average nonprofit website, and you know what, I won't even say just nonprofits, I'll throw for-profits in as well. There's just 
way too much information. Everyone throws everything in the kitchen sink in there. And the fact of the matter is, if I'm a casual observer, I'm not going to be spending a ton of time on your website. Uh, I think the average person spends less than 30 seconds on a website. And so unless the website clearly articulates to me what it is you do and how you do it and what problem you're trying to solve in the world, I, as a casual observer, am not going to spend a ton of time trying to understand and, and use my you know, mental capacity to try to understand what it is you do. So I often think of your website and your collateral as your opening line at a cocktail party. I was once at a cocktail party and I got sidelined by this guy who really enjoyed talking about himself and then also really enjoyed talking about complex financial things that I had no idea about. So that's kind of the equivalent of what you're doing with your website if you if you're not inviting people into a conversation and if you're talking about stuff that they don't really understand. First of all, nobody likes to admit that they don't know what you're talking about because no one likes to feel dumb. But when you use terms that are really jargony like empowerment and so forth, it it's very hard to invite people into a conversation because they don't understand what you're talking about. In general, I would say most nonprofits need to do a pretty big overhaul of their websites in order to clearly state the problem that they're trying to solve in the world and how they solve it, and then to clear out the clutter in order to make one one call to action is what we call it, which is to donate or to volunteer or whatever it may be. Because if you have like five different things that people can do, they're going to end up not doing any of it. And I mean, it's it's sort of the equivalent of, you know, for those of you living in New York, when you go to those, those all night diners and you get a menu that is about the size of a telephone book, I find that super overwhelming. I usually end up ordering a bagel because I just can't with all of the options. And so what you're really trying to do is you're doing your potential donor the very great favor of curating down and helping them to understand in a very simple way what it is you're asking them to do. Same goes for your message. Same goes for your quote unquote elevator pitch. I'm not even going to get into the elevator pitch right now because I have a whole thing about elevator pitches. But all to say that your elevator pitch, quote unquote, should be really clear, really concise, and really understandable. The third M is market. So market, quite simply, is who are your donors and what do they care about? So I have been in so many meetings, kind of just want to shoot myself in the face when I've heard people say, well, Everybody is our donor, which basically means that nobody is your donor. I've been in board meetings when I've had board members ask things like, well, why don't we just call up Oprah to give us money or, you know, fill in the wealthy person du jour. Uh, right now, Mackenzie Scott or Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or any random rich person that we might care of. Number one. Unless you know that person, unless that person is on your speed dial, unless that person has actually been at your wedding, you're, you're not going to call Oprah, okay? The other thing is, I once had a board member say, well, you know, if we, if we had every single person in New York donate a dollar, we wouldn't have to fundraise. I feel like I don't even need to respond 
about why that is a ridiculous statement. But the fact is, not every single person is going to support every single cause, and nor should they. We have so many causes in the world that need people. Like, I don't care personally about every single cause that everyone is doing. And I, while I might recognize that it might be important, I have a few causes that are near and dear to my heart, and therefore I'm much more prone to support those causes. At the end of the day, a nonprofit is a business, and a business makes money by solving a problem. Now, the problem you solve may not be the people who give you the money or the animals that give you the money or the rainforest that gives you the money, but the people who donate money, but the people who give the money are looking for a problem that they have to be solved, namely that they have concerns about a particular issue area or that they're looking for community or that they want legacy. So it is your job to deeply understand the key motivations of your donor. And here's where I see a lot of nonprofits stumble because they actually haven't done the deep work of having, dare I say it, conversations with their donors. I'm going to include something that I found really interesting. So Bain Consulting Group created what they call the Elements of Value, and it's largely related to consumer goods, but it examines, for example, why certain consumers buy certain things. So let's take a car, for example. Now, if you're in the market for a car, you could just buy a car. You could buy a Toyota that is relatively cheap, but some people buy a luxury car. Some people buy a Mercedes-Benz. So what is the difference between the per person who's looking at the Mercedes-Benz versus the person who's looking at the Toyota? There are both cars, but they'll both fill a need that you have to get from point A to point B. And the difference is that we have different values for different types of goods and different types of services and products. And so uh, it's a pyramid that is based on the Maslow's hierarchy of need. And the higher up you go, the more you can charge for a product. So this is relevant to the nonprofit sector because the very tip top of the pyramid is self-transcendence. And that is the moment in which people are willing to buy something quite expensive because it says something about them or it, it allows them to become something different. At the very top of this pyramid, as human beings, I believe that we all want to be part of something greater than ourselves. We all want purpose in the world and we all want to feel hope. And lucky us, in the nonprofit sector, we peddle in these things. We are uniquely suited to offer people the opportunity to be part of some transformative and positive change in the world. And I think that we have to deeply understand what it is our donors value and how it is our nonprofits can help them manifest that which they value in the world. And when we tap into the highest levels of self-transcendence and hope and generosity and community is when we get to the highest levels of generosity and transformation for them and for our organizations. So I'll include the Bain work in the show notes so you can take a look at it yourself. Next M, methodology. In theory and on paper, it seems like a pretty simple thing, which is that you have a process, a series of simple and repeatable processes that you go through to go to take someone from a prospect to a donor. Seems really easy to do. In practice, it's actually 
much harder to do, or at least it was harder for me to do because what, so while you may have developed a system and a process, it's really hard to get everyone aligned to continue to do the same process over and over. So let me just take a big step back. In the world of fundraising, there are four key activities that uh, that you take a donor through. The, the first is identification. The second is cultivation. The third is ask. And the fourth is stewardship. And it goes around in a circle again and again and again. Of all of these pieces of cultivating a donor, ask is actually the smallest part of of this of the cycle and cultivation is the largest part of the cycle and so as we think about the four processes we as organizations and as leaders need to break down those steps into smaller repeatable processes and so a lot of times we may not be quite systematic about well how are we prospecting and identifying potential donors and then what do we do once we once they get into our pipeline it can be generally pretty ad hoc i would recommend having a menu of sorts in order to have a, a standard process for all of the prospects then you get to ask again it's it's art and not science, but you generally should have a clear idea about how you ask and when you ask through, at various stages of the cultivation process. And then stewardship, and stewardship is what happens after the ask. So I think that a lot of nonprofits make the biggest mistakes around stewardship because they think that the gift is the end goal. And the mistake that they make is that the gift is not the end goal. The, the gift is the beginning of a relationship. Where I see many nonprofits make key mistakes is that they have not stewarded their their donors well and they therefore A, lose them as donors or B, aren't able to effectively turn them into repeat donors or higher level donors. And so, there's a simple way that you can just take a step back and analyze your current donor base. Where did they come from? Where do you currently find prospects? And I would say as far as prospecting goes, taking a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach is going to be the difference between raising a lot of money and barely scraping by. So for example, your different pools could be uh, your volunteer base or board introductions or your annual event or social media. I would say it's important to have a couple of key prospect pools that you're constantly nurturing and feeding. And then you create a funnel. So once you've identified the people that you think might be donors, in the cultivation stage, you create a system where they know like and trust you that's how you develop a relationship you move from awareness so what information are you feeding them let's go back to the website i think that's a pretty key piece of of marketing material what sort of interactions are you having with them maybe you're inviting them on a site visit maybe you're getting them on a phone call maybe you're sending them uh your newsletter and then if they start to be engaged, that's when you can engage in higher levels of closer and closer cultivation and engagement activities. The touch points should always build in each other. And so the other mistake that I see a lot of folks making is that they throw a lot of effort and activity at a new prospect before really knowing if the person is interested. And that 
really just ends up being a lot of wasted time and energy. So I often like to talk about, I always use dumb dating analogies, which is ironic because I haven't been single in a very long time. But when you're looking at a, at a prospect, you're not going to ask them to get married on the first date. Or you might, but that's certainly going to scare them off. Instead, think about how you create ever-increasing touch points to increase their commitment to you and the organization over time. And again, we sometimes wait too long to ask. You don't want to be that person who dates for 10 years before you pop the question. So if you're thinking about how you're cultivating, think about it in the context of the dating world. What was What is a first date experience? What might a second date experience be? What about a third date experience? And by the third date, perhaps you might want to ask for a commitment. And then once you have the commitment, how are you continuing to nurture that relationship? So again, you need seven different touch points to say thank you before you even ask for another gift. All of these steps will differ by organization, but I will say I strongly advocate just putting these steps down on paper so that everybody in the organization is clear about what the different processes are in the funnel so that they can repeat it uh, and you're building a system. And once you actually have a system, when you start to see breakdowns along the system, you know what to tweak as opposed to throwing the whole system out with the bathwater. So a lot of times I'll have organizations say that like they need to revamp the whole thing. And I often think that maybe that's a bit of an extreme reaction. Let's take what works and tweak what doesn't work. But you won't actually know the difference unless you, you approach your system unless you approach your process in a systematic way. Finally, management. Broadly, this is what I consider to be the board and your staff. So let's talk about your board because the most common complaint I hear is that my board isn't raising any money. So here are the top four problems I see from folks. Number one, you make it all about the money. <laughs> so board members, I always heard in my organization that the board members complained that all I talked about was the money and all I talked about was how the board members were never actually raising enough money. Uh, and the truth probably lies somewhere in between. The mistake that I made is that I talked about the money, but I didn't link it to the mission enough. I didn't make clear enough what the money would enable us to do as an organization. And so if you don't put the work in the center of the conversation, then people miss the mark and they think it's really just about the money. It's not about the money. It's about what the money will enable you to do as a mission. Number two, you don't make it about the money. So <laughs> I've talked with folks who haven't had explicit conversations with board members, either when they're recruiting them or once they're on the board about their expectations with respect to how much they're expected to personally contribute, how much they're expected to bring to the table, and any expectations about how they're supposed to tap their network. And so I say this a lot of time, hope is not a strategy. And so if you're not having explicit conversations with board members about their duty, what's expected of them, and how everyone is doing at every board meeting, then it's probably not a surprise that you're not getting the results that you want. Number three, lack of clarity. So this is simply that board members aren't clear about what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to do it. This is a fairly easy fix. You can introduce things like really simple board commitment letters at the beginning of every fiscal year 
and have annual board evaluations at the end of the year. Throughout the year, you work with your development committee, if you have one, I hope you do, or your exec committee to set really simple goals and milestones for all of the board members throughout the year. And then you check in at, at board meetings. I mean, there's really nothing more effective than making transparent the work of the board because the other thing is nobody wants to be embarrassed. And so if you're asking people, for example, to call five different people and you do a check-in at the board meeting, I can assure you nobody wants to be that person who said that they haven't done their job. So again, set really simple, clear-cut goals and milestones and have a process by which you're holding everybody accountable. And then number four, lack of positive reinforcement. As the saying goes, you're gonna get a lot more bees with honey than you are with vinegar. Oftentimes, when you're talking about your board raising money, you can complain that they're not doing it, but surely there are some people who ha are doing some things, right? So it's important to also elevate the bright spots and lavish praise on the things that are going well and the things that aren't going well, you have to have a private conversation. And again, I think it goes so much to the value of relationships. Like we don't often carve out the time to have really personal one-on-one -on -one relationships with the people that are important to the work. And at the end of the day, the relationship is everything. So in order to start to move the culture of the board, you have to manage both with carrots and with sticks. What's interesting is I often see EDs and board members forget their leadership and management skills when it comes to board work. And so even though your board members are volunteers, good management and leadership tactics do not cease to exist. And so the way that you're managing your team or your staff is the, are some of the same ways that you should be managing your board. And then lastly, and I won't go too deeply into this, but it's important that staff also understands what you're doing as an organization. And so I've noticed this a lot, that there seems to be most tension between program folks and fundraising folks. And I think it's, you know, and I've heard all of it, but, you know, the development people will complain that the program people aren't giving them the numbers that they want. The program people are complaining that the development people are, you know, interrupting program by bringing donors or asking too much, uh, you know, asking for numbers. And I think one of the key things to break down the silo is to really help everybody understands, understand their role in the whole. So, Program people should be sharing with the whole team what they're working on, and development people should also be sharing with the whole team what their work is, what they're working on, and why it's important. And, and for a lot of folks on the staff, their understanding of fundraising may be pretty limited and, and or they may not have a deep understanding or have done the work around their own baggage about money. And so I think it's often helpful to have regular check-ins and orientations for everybody and trainings about the role of fundraising in continuing to do the work. I've just dumped a lot of information on you. And the reason I'm sharing this with you now is that I just launched my group coaching program where we'll do a deeper dive on each of these topics over the course of six weeks. So the cohort is actually limited to 12 people and is ideal for executive directors or development directors of nonprofits of a million dollars or less. And so I just opened registration on Wednesday. I'm closing registration by end of day on Friday, August 14th, or when the group is full, whichever comes first. So if this seems interesting to you, please head over to riawong.com and click 
group coaching program for more information. I'd love to help you bring resources to your important work and would love to work with you. So have a great week and I will see you next week. Please leave me any comments or shoot me an email and let me know if this has been helpful to you or have, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Have a great week and thanks for listening. Thank you.